So Alison, you've had four Christmases in Aotearoa, New Zealand now? Yeah. Yes, four on and off. And yeah. does it get any less weird? No, no. <laughs> Hot weather Santa is so weird to but, me. But you're from Texas. Are I you know. telling me you have a white Christmas in Texas? But but a white Christmas in Texas is always possible. It's like attainable if if you just wish hard enough, Emily Duncan. <laughs> Kia ora, hello, and welcome to this episode of Play Notes Podcast. I'm your host, Emily Duncan. And I'm also your host, Alison Horsley. And we're both dramaturgs, meaning we read a lot of plays. We've likely read the plays you feel you should have, but didn't. And that's where Play Notes comes in. And today, we are starting on the first of three monologues. Yes. And it just so happens, the very first monologue we're going to discuss is a New Zealand monologue set over a New Zealand Christmas. Yes, yes. the classic Kiwi Christmas <laughs> monologue. We, we've all heard of it. I had heard of it early on when I moved here. Right. It took me a while to actually see it. Uh, but of course, we're talking about the end of the golden weather. By, by Bruce Mason. Bruce Mason. Um, and we should, you know, note that this is this is a uh, this is a Pākehā colonial view of Christmas in Aotearoa, New Zealand. But still, it's very specific to this place, and we're going to be talking a bit more about that. Um, end of the Golden Weather is, you know, of course, I'm very excited to finally be talking about a New Zealand play <laughs> yes. uh, in this um, first series. And End of the Golden Weather was first produced in 19. 19- 60. Um, so, you know, it is very much of its era, but yeah. it still resonates a lot now. We both saw a production produced by a local company, Wow, last year. Mm-hmm. It was Wow Productions. Yes. I mean, also Wow, but it, the, but Wow Productions. Yeah, here in Otipoti, Dunedin, New Zealand. Yes. Yes. Uh, directed by Lisa Warrington, acted by Matt Wilson. Yes. And it was really quite superb. They toured in the spirit of um, Bruce Mason, mm-hmm. uh, because he, let me just look at my stats. Yeah, tell, so, tell us about okay. Bruce Mason. Well, so, I'm also just going to point out Emily Duncan is a Bruce Mason uh, Playwriting Award winner. This is my coincidence. We chose this play before mm-hmm. I... Tell us about Bruce award. Mason, Emily. Okay, so well, he is, um, you know, a very significant, was a very, well, still a significant playwright in New Zealand, um, for whom the Bruce Mason Award is named, of course. Um, he's known for his multi-character cast plays um, as much as his monologues. What's one of his famous multi-character there's the Putakawa tree. Okay. It's probably one of the most well known. Um, mm-hmm. I think I studied that in maybe sixth form at school, which is now uh, year 12. So it's the second to last year of high school in New Zealand. Okay. Um, it still gets produced occasionally. Um, you know, in some aspects, it has dated. It's probably not the most. Culturally astute. This is Purdukawa yeah, Tree or End of the Golden Weather? It's a Purdukawa okay. Tree. But also for the time when he wrote it and was first produced, it, it was groundbreaking. Yeah. Nice. And, you know, kudos to him for doing uh, groundwork in that sense at a time. Because uh, it was, it was uh, characters were Maori and also yes, Pakistan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, that wasn't really done by anyone else. And, 
you know, he did a lot of work towards, you know, helping us foster and put on stage, you know, distinct Kiwi vernacular. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's nice. been a bit of a long road. Yeah. Getting there. You're yeah, still, yeah, yeah. still finding a yeah, voice. Still there today. now. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, tip of the hat to that. But, yeah, End of the Golden Weather was a monologue. Uh, it was semi-autobiographical. Uh, it's set um, on a beach that he refers to as Te Paranga, mm-hmm. uh, which is, in fact... Takapuna, Takapuna Beach, I think. Uh, which is, uh, yeah, in Auckland, Auckland yeah. for those of you not familiar. Mm-hmm. And if you read or see the play... Uh, there's also a 1991 film version. That's how I first saw it. I remember our our school was taken along to see it. Yeah. Oh, to the movie. Yeah, 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 okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, right. Yeah, and I'm assuming you must be able to see that somewhere. Um, yeah, it's got very recognisable um, Auckland mm-hmm. Tamaki Makauro landmarks. Yeah. Yeah, even yeah. though it's set in this fictional place. So Kiwi classic in a way. Very much so. Um, and also it's set at a time, um, sort of just post the Great Depression. Mm -hmm. So uh, one of the historical events it um, references are the Queen Street riots. And it's all told through the eyes of a 12-year-old boy. And this is something that particularly appeals to me about the play, and I, I think some of the real skill can be found in it. Because how the story is told through this 12-year-old boy's eyes. He's sort of very earnest in a way, mm-hmm. but not self-pitying. Mm-hmm. There is humour. Um, there's that real balance of both wonder and also a bit of horror at the world. Mm-hmm. So, for example, the recounting of the Queen Street riots. Yeah, yeah. From from a 12-year-old boy's perspective of... of- living through this and and seeing the people in the neighborhood mm. you know essentially participating in this yes yeah um and there's there's multiple characters in the play that the performer takes on the no- narrator mm-hmm. so bruce mason wrote this play as many monologues um start out is for he himself to perform and we were talking earlier about some other sort of well-known monologues yeah. that people might want to tap into if they're interested. Yeah. So there, I mean, of course, these kind of span different different parts of recent theatre history, but um, of course, Spalding Gray was like a master of, of the monologue. Monster um, in a box. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of his work can be found on YouTube. Mm. Oh, at Swimming to Cambodia. So I think Swimming to Cambodia. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So certainly, certainly he, um, Billy Crystal's 700 Sundays, which is a bit more recent. And quite a very personal piece as well. Yeah, yeah, very, ent- entirely good. personal. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, of course, there's the next two monologues that we'll cover here on Play Notes, which mm-hmm. will be Vagina Monologues and Fleabag. Mm-hmm. Uh, so those goes, go without saying. Um, but also, uh, one that I was talking about earlier was uh, uh, I Am My Own Wife, which is not really written to be a monologue performed by the writer, but it's another example of one of these monologues in which the performer plays dozens of roles. Right. So it's kind of a, it's, it's a, it's a, um, it's, it's a, a triumphant performance for a, for a, so, for a solo actor, mm-hmm. basically to pull this off. Cause they're playing so many different parts. Um, yeah. So go ahead. Well, we were also talking about the focus of this episode around, you know, why monologues often come to be. Yeah. It's from a, often a very pragmatic, practical 
place. Yeah, and you, so you started writing actually with a monologue, right? That was my very first play. It was called uh, Lips. I had trained as an actor. Um, I trained at the Lee Strasberg in New York City. I was back in Wellington, New Zealand, studying towards a theatre degree. And um, I thought, hey, why don't I just write something for myself to perform in the Fringe Festival? Okay. And that's how it all got started. And you know, yeah. I imagine that's a, the case with a lot of people who write monologues. I could do it with no budget. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I didn't really need to get anyone else involved. Because of course, this was on quite a, a small scale. But that becomes much more possible. Yeah. With producing a monologue, say, versus producing Romeo and Juliet. Right. Or yeah, yeah. Merchant of Venice or Othello or even the Greek tragedies. Oh, yeah. Even yeah. though they only have three main actors, you've still got your chorus and, you know, you need to bring your cranes in. and Yeah, yeah. Your, your dragon chariots yeah, are yeah, not yeah, cheap. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. So it's, so it's necessity and then also creative control in some ways as well. Yes. And it seems like Bruce Mason created this out of out of that sense of necessity mm-hmm. and there being a lack of, I guess, roles for him um, and, and playwriting opportunities in terms of full-time playwriting. It's a form of self-sufficiency. Yeah. And I, I don't think I gave this stat. So he the, the play was first produced in 1960. By 1978, he had performed it 968 times. That is unreal. And it's a properly full-length work. Yeah. It's, you know, it, um, it has an intermission. It goes for a couple of hours at least, doesn't mm-hmm. it? Yeah, yeah I think yeah. so. It's yeah. A, yeah. It's yeah. a big, meaty part. But also, um, from memory, the set only requires a table and a chair or two chairs. Mm-hmm. It's very simple. He would tour it around the regions in New Zealand as well. Um and that sense, I think of it almost like a community theatre work. Yeah. And that he would be billeted mm. with people. Oh, yeah. So it's just members of the community. Yeah. You know, yeah. I don't know, the the head of the Women's Institute and in whatever region. Has so a yes, guest we'll, room. Well, well yeah. yes, we'll yeah. take Mr. Mason in for the weekend and, yeah. Yeah. And so then he can perform it at the community hall. Yeah. Well, and so in thinking back to some of the Shakespeare's that we were talking about, we were talking about those plays as being the advent of professional theater in England. Mm-hmm. And I was just thinking about the fact that in, in some ways, this play and Bruce Mason's work uh, b- certainly contributed to the existence of professional theater in New Zealand. Being a jobbing actor. Yeah. 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 And, and now, Performer, of course, he's a legend. Director, producer. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's a legend in, in terms of New Zealand theater. And, yeah. you know, by the time, it was, it was necessity. So something else we were going to talk about with this particular script is it has a sort of interesting structure and we were thinking how that lines up with the plays we're talking about back at the start with those, you know, Aristotle's ideals of what a play should yeah, be like. Yeah, with Do you like want to talk a, to that a bit, Alison? Well, like in, in traditional Aristotelian structure, you know, you have like an exposition and a rising action and a climax and a falling action and a denouement, you know, <laughs> as it <laughs> were. Untying. Yeah, yeah, yeah the, the untying or the or the tying up of the loose ends, you know, like the, yeah, the end part. 
And with this play, it's more like a snapshot of a recollection of childhood. Um, but it's not it's not just one event. It's um, you were making the observation that it almost covers the same period of time, but with two different lenses almost or t- yeah. tell us about so this. So there's this character, um, Furpo, mm-hmm. um, who's referred to in the sort of first telling of the story mm-hmm. as our many different characters. Yeah, yeah. And he it's just so much shows fun up. for all the different, you know, vignettes and portraits of the different, you know, like there's, the, there's a vicar on the beach and there's the woman who goes swimming and, you know. Yeah, yeah. So the kid is observing these people and, and, and describing them and also being them momentarily as well, yeah. or the performer is. And there's there's a there's a reference to this character of Furpo, mm-hmm. but then the second half of the play goes back to where it started chronologically, but with Furpo as a central character alongside um, the narrator. Yeah, and and the narrator's evolving understanding of who Furpo is within the society mm-hmm. and, and also... Furpo's an outsider, whereas yeah. the narrator aligns himself with him. Yeah, and then kind of realizes exactly how much of an outsider Furpo really is in this community. Mm-hmm. Um, and the lengths he goes to, we were saying that... The that, narrator... That he goes and buys this... He wants to build Furpo up for this... Um, a race. race competition. Yeah, Furpo wants to be pretty much an Olympian in a variety of, of contests, and the local boys challenge him to a race on the beach. So our unnamed narrator is, like, wanting to build Furpo up because he's very skinny. And he takes all of his pocket money and goes to the butcher, and the butcher gives him this huge... Was it a ham? It's a oh, joint of joint ham. Of ham. It's just yeah. this huge piece of meat... He takes it to Furpo, who then says, well, I'm, I don't eat meat. Yeah, I'm a vegetarian. Yeah, and then he has to take it home to his mother, who's just appalled and yeah. already has a roast. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, and the narrator just kind of plays it off. He's like, well, I was just trying to be helpful. Tried. Bye. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. <laughs> And just kind of runs off. And I, it, it hurts it it just hurts so much because you you I identify with that desire of childhood to be helpful and to be giving but not quite know how to do it mm-hmm. and to to try and cover up a, a, a misunderstanding you know that you have when you're a kid about how things work or 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 hurt feelings mm-hmm. and it just oh it just kills me still uh, but there's no self pity no this is no where not the writing at all. is really good yeah yeah so. the kid he just sort of is like. A horror, he's not even horrified. He's just trying to deal with it and Next then moves thing. on. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And we won't blow what happens with Furpo, but it's it's weirdly the 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 race is both it's it's a satisfying experience of the race and also a heartbreaking experience of mm-hmm. the race. It's both. And that's something that Bruce Mason really captures. He he captures the kind of the the glory and also that that ache of of I don't know life of like daily life and of nostalgia and looking back on and your coming life. of age yeah yeah the end of, of the golden weather and where is it the reference to a degree you know the end of innocence yeah yeah you know, when you're younger and it feels like summer goes on forever and I never had that did you <laughs> it goes on for all of Christmas that's for yeah. sure in New Zealand in New Zealand
It's really easy to get hold of a copy of the text of End of Golden Weather. It's well published. Emily Duncan is showing uh, her copy of The End of the Golden Weather to the microphone yes. right now. <laughs> yes. Look. <laughs> look. Hot guard. Look. Can you see? But yeah, readily available. And it's really fun to read. It, it, re- it reads like a novella or something. Yeah, it is. Script. I will say with, with my with my um, foreigner perspective, mm-hmm. definitely coming to it, I, I was struck by how very... Uh, Pakea it was in that, you know, especially in the opening moments of the, you know, a thousand years of history coming over to New Zealand, you know, I mean, it's, it's very Eurocentric. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, but that's the which nature. Which we can't look past. Yeah, which you can't look past. And yet that is the nature of this snapshot of this point in history. Mm-hmm. So that's a complicating factor for sure when you talk about producing it and all of that. Um, but it is, it's a beautiful read as a coming of age story. Yeah. And, and while I, I won't do, um, Bruce Mason justice, I picked out a little favorite bit, which again, you know, references what we were talking about at the start, the Christmas in New Zealand. Yes. Um, and we consider our beautiful Pohutkawa trees to be the unofficial New Zealand Aotearoa Christmas tree. The beach is fringed with Pahutkawa trees, single and stunted in the gardens, spreading and noble on the cliffs, and in the empty spaces by the foreshore. Tiny red coronets prick through the grey-green leaves. Bark, flower and leaf seem overlaid by smoke. The red is of a dying fire at dusk, the green faded and drab. Pain and age are in these gnarled forms, in bare roots clutching at the earth, knotting on the cliff face and tortured branches dark against the washed sky. Christmas in New Zealand is not so bad. Yeah, suspend your disbelief. 